Hi, this is Wilson with Renew Church OC. Thanks for jumping into our podcast. Over the next three months, our new series is called Lineage, and we're going to walk through major characters of the Old Testament from Abraham all the way to Daniel and understand the movement of the nation of Israel. This is important because it's part of our lineage. Our lineage isn't just made up of our ethnic or national identity, but as Christians, it's primarily this Old Testament story. Abraham is the father of our faith. And in Ephesians, we learn that God is making one people, Jewish and Gentiles, into the story of lineage, of how God has called a people to himself. So I hope that as you read the Old Testament, it wouldn't just be stories of dead old Jewish guys, but you would look at it as your own ancestry, as part of your story and the story that we're continuing. Hope you enjoy our new series. All right, we're back and uh, we are continuing our study uh, on lineage. Uh, We're looking at the characters in the Old Testament And we come to one more cautionary tale. And that's the reason why in our watch groups, I wanted us to just encourage and inspire one another is because this message is not encouraging. As a matter of fact, it's not meant to be. It's a very intense message because we'll be talking about the character Saul in the Bible. So take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 31. Let's look at the life of Saul. And I really believe, even though it's not necessarily an inspirational, encouraging message, it'll be very important to our lives. 1 Kings chapter 31, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. So if we could put the uh, slide up, it says this. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the Israelites fled before them. And many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. And Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer was terrified and would not do it. And so Saul took his own sword and he fell on it. Verse 5, when the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. And verse 6, so Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died together that same day. When the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled. And the Philistines came and occupied them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his armor, and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. Verse 10, they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. You know, some time ago, uh, before COVID, I attended a funeral. And I'm sure many of you have attended funerals before. You've gone to the grave sites. And there's something sobering about walking through a grave site as you look at the gravestones of people. You know, as I was doing this, I started thinking about my own mortality. You can't help but do that. 
And I was reminded that life is short. And I thought, you know, my day will come. Just as these dear men and women are in the grave, someday I will be as well. And I read some of the gravestones. And of course, they were all genders, all ages, all different races. You know, I read one that said John Robert, February 22, 1931 is when he was born, to August the 26, 2004. And his headstone said this, a loving dad, tenderhearted and kind, what a beautiful memory that you left behind. And in quotation marks, it said our favorite storyteller. I was perusing another one. It said Betty Joyce, born August the 2nd, 1934, died June 5th, 2001. And that capstone read, you will always be our Betty Boop. Your laughter was so infectious. And there was engraved a cartoon of Betty Boop. I saw another one, Kevin Ramirez, May 5th, 1990 through February the 3rd, 2012. And it read, a beautiful life that soon came to an end, but he died as he lived, everyone's friend. I saw another one, Demetrio Bahay, February 6th, 1919 to December the 17th, 1999. And it said, a loving dad granddad, and great-granddad. And here's what was written. It's not what one wants, but what God grants. Isn't that so true? What I find interesting as I peruse these gravestones is the legacy that these people left behind. And you see it in what their families chose to inscribe on their tombstones. You see, epitaphs can tell us a lot about a person. You know, when it's all said and done, when life is over, It's all about the choices that we make. As you read those epitaphs, you realize that life is really about choices. So my question this morning is, as you live out this vapor that we call life, as you choose your actions and your reactions in life, what will your epitaph say? What will it say that your life was all about? Now, I realize that your physical tombstone could say nothing. Or your family could just write something nice and put something nice on there. But as I began to ponder, as I walked through the seminary, cemetery, excuse me, I thought, how will God write the epitaph of my life? Because when it's all said and done, it's what God thinks that really matters the most. What will God say that my life was all about? Did you know that God writes epitaphs? When we read from 2 Kings to 2 Chronicles, we see that the Bible writes an epitaph about every king that Israel had. You see, God writes epitaphs. In the New Testament, when we look at Scripture, we see that as Christians, we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and all of our lives will be evaluated on what we chose to build with in our lives. If we could put the slide up, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We see in verse 11, each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and that fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. But if it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, 
even though only as one escaping through the flames. You know, the Bible teaches that God will evaluate us as Christians in our Christian life. We all have Jesus as the foundation, but what did we choose to build with? Was it gold, silver, and gems, or was it wood, hay, and stubble? And I dare say some of us will find a reward, and some of us will find tragedy, will escape damnation, will we'll be in heaven, but it will be um, as one escaping through the flames. How are you building your life? What will your epitaph say in the end? When we look at the life of Saul, we see that this was a man who was full of potential. He was approved by God to be his representative for Israel. He was anointed by the prophet Samuel to be the first king of Israel. He was head and shoulders above all the people of Israel. He was a natural born leader and warrior, yet his life ends in misery and tragedy. Saul, who was so full of potential, ends up committing suicide, the Bible tells us. In our text, in verse 4 through 10, it tells us that the Philistines triumph over him. His sons are killed. His soldiers are routed and destroyed. And his head is cut off and paraded through the five city-states of Philistia. His body is nailed to the walls of Bashan. This is tragic, tragic, tragic. But the most tragic truth of all was that this need never to have happened. This was not how it was supposed to end for Saul. Saul was supposed to have victory in his life. He was to see success in his life. He could have been great as a king. The Bible says that his throne could have been established. But what brought about this tragedy? In 1 Samuel 26 and 21, can we put uh, the, the slide up? We see Saul's epitaph summarizing his life. This is how God evaluated his life. This was his legacy. This was why he failed so tragically. In 1 Samuel 26, uh, in verse 21, and we look at uh, the last 12 words, here Saul understands or realizes that he's messed it up. And he says these 12 words, Surely I have acted like a fool and have been terribly wrong. These 12 words brought about this ultimate tragedy. These 12 words are Saul's epitaph. Saul was a fool. And in playing the fool, he lived terribly wrong. The Bible says that Saul was a fool, and in his foolish choices, this eventually made him a failure. You know, foolishness characterized the life of Saul. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want us to examine our own lives. Are we foolish? Are we living foolish lives? Are we living terribly wrong? When you live like a fool, you fail in life. <clears throat> now, you might have an objection. You might say, well, I'm not a fool. I'm not stupid. I'm a doctor. I have an MBA. I started a business and it's very successful. I'm no fool. And what we do is we think a fool is someone who lacks men mental capacity, someone who's dull or slow or mentally challenged. But you know, that's a misunderstanding because foolishness in the Bible is not a mental problem. Foolishness is a moral problem. A fool is not someone who is mentally lacking. A fool is someone who is morally unrepentant. 
And so the definition of a fool, as we see in Scripture, is found in Psalm 14 and verse 1. Could, you, could we put that up? Psalm 14 and verse 1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, David the psalmist is not referring to an atheist. He's not talking about atheism. No one in the ancient Near East at that time believed in that philosophy. He is saying the fool in their heart lives life without God. The fool lives without God in their life. The fool doesn't seek God's will or God's plan. It lives apart from God. As a matter of fact, if we continue reading in Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3, we see that very idea. The Bible defines a fool as someone who does not live for God. That person disobeys the Father. That person lives apart from Jesus. That person does not follow the direction of the Holy Spirit. So that begs the question, can a Christian fall into the definition for a fool? Absolutely. Saul is the perfect example of this. He knows God. He knows the true and living God. As a matter of fact, God allowed him to be the first king of Israel. But Saul doesn't live for God in his life. Although he does know God, he lives as though there is no God. You see, his choices prove that he lives apart from God in his life. And so this morning, I want us to focus on foolishness as a Christian because we, brothers and sisters, have God in our lives. We know the Lord, but yet we could still fall into the same. I know that we could spend time looking at, you know, the complete uh, devolution of Saul in many passages, but I really only want to look at one passage when it comes to Saul, and that is 1 Samuel chapter 15. I want us to focus on one thing. And as we look at this passage, here's my point. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. The first point is the characteristic of foolishness in the area of rebellion. When we look at Saul, we see the character of foolishness in the area of rebellion. Now, what is rebellion? Well, rebellion is defying or resisting God's will, God's direction, or God's authority on our lives. Well, you might say right away, well, I'll never do that. I would never defy or resist God in my life. But you know, there is an aspect of rebellion that is found in 1 Samuel 15 that is very interesting, and it's something we have to understand. In 1 Samuel 15, God commands Saul to destroy the Amalekites for their shocking wickedness and evil practices that they were perpetrating in this promised land. And they continued to do it for centuries. And here, God gave them time to repent of their sin. He gave them 400 years, but they didn't repent. And so here, God is going to judge Amalek. And so he instructs Saul to judge them by totally destroying everything. Totally destroying everything. Now, let's pick it up in verse 9. But Saul and the army spared Agag, that was the king of Amalek, and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything else that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. And then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. And in verse 12, it says, early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. So here he's going to tell him something right? He's going to tell him what God had told him. Verse 13, when Samuel reached Saul, Saul said, the Lord bless you. 
I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Now, this is very interesting. Did he obey? Did he carry out God's plan? No, he didn't. As a matter of fact, God tells uh, Samuel, I regret that I've made Saul king because he is so disobedient, because he haven't, hasn't carried out my instructions. But here's what's interesting. Saul believes that he has. As a matter of fact, we don't see any uneasiness. We don't see him uncomfortable when he sees Samuel. There's no guilt. He says, I have carried out the Lord's instructions with all confidence. In Saul's eyes, he's done the right thing. Now let's look in verse 14. But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? And what is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Look at verse 19. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? What was Saul's response? Verse 20. But I did obey the Lord. But I did obey the Lord. If we don't catch this truth, uh, we won't understand what's happening here in this dialogue between Saul and Samuel. The major aspect of rebellion, I want you to know, is self-deception. Saul is believing a lie. Samuel has just told him what he has done wrong, and Saul's like, well, what's the big deal? I've done everything God told me, but, you know, I might have kept Agag. I might have kept some of the sheep and stuff, but we're going to sacrifice them to the Lord anyway. I've done everything the Lord wanted me to do. You know, Pastor Rick Warren has said this, and I think it's so insightful. He says, rebellion in a very real sense is self-deception. Rebellion is believing a lie. When Lucifer believed a lie, he rebelled and became Satan. When Adam and Eve believed the lie, they rebelled, and we have a fallen world because of it. When Saul believed a lie, he rebelled, and he was rejected as king. You see, when you believe a lie, you will rebel. And when you rebel, you live out that lie until it ultimately ends in tragedy. You see, the Bible describes a fool as someone who is willingly deceived. A fool is someone who is willing to be seduced into sin. And see, that's the danger of rebellion. And you know what? Isn't that true for us as well? When we foolishly rebel against God, we're seduced into believing that what we're doing is okay. What we're doing is even right. What we're doing is even godly. And it's not in the reality of things. You know, we, uh, I've seen in our generation, we forsake what is plainly taught in scripture and we support cultural norms of our day. We end up uh, holding up a postmodern philosophy, let's say, uh, a spirit of the age, and we hold it up and we support it when God's word says it's sin. You know, uh, just the other day, I was talking to some people who were in progressive Christianity, and this was a kind of thinking in Christianity where the postmodern ideas, some of these ideas that God in his word are against, they'll hold it up and say, well, you know, we got to get with the times, you know? The things that are found here in scripture, that's not really applicable to us today, and we've got to just change with the times, right? Well, what is that? That's believing a lie. Or maybe we commit to some Christian imperative, but then we disobey other Christian imperatives because we find them difficult or uncomfortable. And so we excuse it saying, what's the big deal? Yeah? We're doing some of it. We're doing the right thing. And we miss the whole point. We're believing a lie. 
We're oblivious to the disobedience that is so displeasing to the Lord. We don't see the hubris and greed and lust in the choices that we're making as Christians. See, that's what's so insidious about rebellion, is because we could be living a rebellious life and not even know it. Let's look in verse 23. It says, For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Now, why does Samuel equate rebellion with divination or idolatry? And that's what divination is, witchcraft. It's actually uh, using things that, you know, are are from another spirit, right? Uh, And why is it that uh, that the Bible equates rebellion with divination? It's because when we are deceived and seduced and enticed to live apart from God, When we defy and resist God, you know what we're doing? We're choosing another spirit that is not the Holy Spirit. There is a surrender to spiritual forces that are not from God. And my friend, that's spiritual deception. We could be doing things wrong and not even know it. You see, rebellion can make repentance impossible because we're deceived into believing that we're not in the wrong. And that is the key to spiritual deception. That brings us to our second point in studying foolishness as a Christian. We looked at, number one, the characteristic of foolishness in the area of rebellion. Now, number two, we want to look at the cure to foolishness in the act of repentance. The cure to foolishness in the act of repentance. You see, the way to break self-deception and to get back, back on track is the act of repentance. Now, when we look at the New Testament word for repentance, we see the word metanoia, okay? And what that means is it means an about face. You know, it's a military term for soldiers who are out in the field, soldiers who are marching one direction, and then the order is given to metanoia. And so the soldiers do an about face, and they change direction and go the opposite way. Soldiers were marching in one direction, metanoia, They do an about face and they march in the opposite direction. That is the picture of repentance. True repentance has to do with changing direction. Repentance is a total change in attitude and action. And so this is interesting. One of the most interesting studies that I've done is to compare and contrast the lives of King Saul and King David, who were the first and second kings of Israel. If you ever get a chance to do this, it's fascinating. They were contemporaries of each other. So both King Saul and King David were contemporaries. And look at the things that they had in common. They both came from humble backgrounds. They were shepherds. They both were anointed by the prophet Samuel to be kings. They both distinguished themselves as warrior leaders. But it's fascinating to see how these two kings turned out so differently. One king turned out rebellious and rejected by God. The other king became a man after God's own heart and the greatest king of Israel. When you compare the kings, what is the difference? What is the significant difference? Well, as we compare these two kings, I think there is a critical difference that emerges. And that is the difference in the attitude and perspective of these two men as evidenced in their confessions. 
And herein we see the difference between true repentance and false repentance. So let's continue reading in 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 23. Here Saul pronounces judgment, or excuse me, Samuel pronounces judgment on Saul for his rebellion. Right? God has rejected him as king of Israel. Now in verse 24, I want you to notice Saul's response. Let's look at verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of my men, so I gave in to them. Verse 25, now I beg of you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. Well, you might look at this and say, wow, it looks like Saul finally repented of his sin, didn't he? Doesn't it show that Saul wants to be forgiven and right with God? I mean, he said it, didn't he? I want us to read on. This is really interesting. Verse 26, And Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. Verse 27, As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught a hold of the hem of his robe, and he tore it. So imagine this. Saul grabs a hold of Samuel's robe. He will not let go. He holds on so tightly that he rips the hem of his garment. Now, why? Why does he do this? This is key. Let's look in verse 30. And Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel come back with me. Here's the reason why Saul repented. He wanted to save face with the leaders of Israel. He needed to keep a public perception that he was still in power. He desired to hold on to his office as king of Israel. In the mind of Saul, he thought, I must be king. So I'll confess whatever I have to. I'll repent of whatever you tell me. I'll do whatever it takes to stay in power. You see, the motive of Saul, he didn't care about his relationship with God. And by the way, the heart of repentance is a relationship with God. The whole purpose of repentance is to restore a right relationship with the Lord. And Saul doesn't care about this. And here you you see that Saul is still foolish and he doesn't see it. Look at his confession. He even says, I'm sorry, but it was my men. And he blames it on his men, on his soldiers. You see, the real reason why Saul repented was to get out of the consequences of his foolishness, to get out of the consequences of his sin. And can I share with you, that is not metanoia. It's not an about face. You know what this is? This is a superficial, hypocritical wordplay. Saul's repentance was false repentance because there was no change in his life. Now I want you to compare that with David. Let's examine David. Let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 11, okay? And I'm going to do this really quickly. This is not really about David, but I think this is fascinating. 2 Samuel 11, beginning in verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of his palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. We know her as Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, right? Let's uh, drop to verse 4. Then David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he slept with her. Okay? Notice verse 5. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So here David commits adultery and now he's got to cover it up. No one, no one can know about his adultery um, with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now let's look in verse 14. It says, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it to Uriah. Verse 15. And in it he wrote, 
put Uriah out in front where the fighting is the fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he will be, so that he will be struck down and die. Did you get that? I don't know if you know this story very well, but this is the David that we're talking about, the man after God's own heart. Doesn't this make you sick to your stomach? David, I can't believe this. Your sin is so utterly evil, it's completely repulsive. You use your power to take advantage of a married woman by committing adultery, and then you betray and murder her husband, a good man who has been nothing but loyal to you? When you look at David's sin, it is so much worse than Saul's sin. As a matter of fact, all of Saul's sins combined is not as bad as David in this predicament. Now I want you to drop down to 2 Samuel chapter 12, okay? 2 Samuel chapter 12. After David does this disgusting sin, right? Some time has passed, and here God uses the prophet Nathan to confront David, just like God used Samuel to confront Saul. 2 Samuel chapter 12, let's look at it. Verse 7, then Nathan said to David, you are the man. So now he's pointing his finger in the king's face and he's saying, you're guilty. You're the man. Drop down to verse 9. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and you took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. So just like the prophet Samuel to King Saul, now Nathan the prophet gives King David the consequences of his sin. Let's look at it in verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. Verse 11, this is what the Lord says. Out of your household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you before your eyes. Verse 12, you did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. Here, the hammer has been laid, right? Uh, Here, judgment has been given. And I want you to notice David's response. Verse 13, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I want you to notice David confesses the same words as Saul. I have sinned. But here he uses three additional words that I believe make all the difference. These three words show the difference between true repentance and false repentance. David says, I have sinned against the Lord. You see, David isn't concerned with saving face. David could care less about his position of power. David isn't focused on the judgment that's facing his family and his house. He doesn't even think about his own life. All David cares about is getting right with his God. And you see, that's the heart of repentance, isn't it? It's a relationship with the Lord. The purpose of repentance is to restore your relationship with God. We don't have time to do this, but if I could just show you Psalm chapter 51, maybe this week you can read it as an addendum to the sermon, but in Psalm chapter 51, we see the repentance of David. And it's so beautiful because it's the repentance that was given right after Nathan said that you're guilty and all these judgments will come upon you. In Psalm chapter 51, you see his heartfelt sorrow over sin. You see his desire to be restored to a relationship with the Lord, no matter what the cost. And you see David's metanoia. You see his complete change. Please read it this week. David doesn't care about the consequences. He only cares about communion with God. You see, isn't it interesting? David was the greater sinner. Saul, compared to David, really did lesser sins. 
But it was David who was forgiven and blessed. And it was Saul who ended up in tragedy. Now, think about that. How in the world could that happen? David was the greater sinner. In man's eyes, it was David who should have ended in tragedy. It was Saul who should have been let, let, let off the hook. But why was it the other way around? It's because David exercised real repentance. His repentance was true, and it was genuine, and it produced a real change. Here's the point of this message. All of us as Christians are going to fall. All of us at times are going to find ourselves rebelling against God. David rebelled against God just like Saul did, but he didn't remain rebellious. You see, David believed lies. He was self-deceived in sin, just like Saul, but he repented and was cured. And this is the difference between foolishness and forgiveness. There is a cure to foolishness, and that is to turn and about face and return to the Lord. You see, your life doesn't have to be a cautionary tale. I did this last week, but I, uh, with Samson, I'm going to say it again. Oh, what could have been different in the life of Saul had he not continued to be obstinately foolish, to live his life apart from God. He had God in his life, and yet he lived apart from the Lord. You don't have to do that today. You don't have to live in misery and tragedy. Don't follow the footsteps of Saul into foolishness. There is still time to change your epitaph that God will write for your life. And I want to share this. If there is a sin that you are holding on to, if there's a life that you're living that you've been deceived about, Christian, will you confess and repent it? Will you come back to the Lord to restore your relationship with him? You know, it's only a repentance away. The Bible tells us that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you that you are such a gracious God. You use these stories in Scripture to teach us what it means to love you and to follow after you. You use these professors, Professor Saul and even Professor David, to show us that we don't have to turn out a certain way, that we can live a life that is victorious and successful if we would just follow after you with a whole heart. We ask, Lord, that you would be at work in our lives, and Lord, wherever we are, whoever is watching, Lord, meet them where they are, we pray. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen.